Evening all. Good to be here with you tonight. Um, let's pray. Father, we come to you tonight and we declare that you are God and there is no other. That you are far above all. The transcendent one the one who made everything and the one in whom we live and move and have our being. Everything exists within you. There's nothing bigger than you. And Lord, when we consider this universe that you have made, the sun and the stars, and when we consider that there are a million stars to every one grain of sand on this planet. Our minds are blown when we consider that you're greater than all of these and you made the stars also. Father, we worship and we praise your name. We praise you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, and we praise you for the cross. We praise you for the blood. We praise you for the resurrection. We praise you for the Holy Spirit's coming. And Lord, we just worship the thrice holy Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Holy, holy, holy. And we pray that we be taken up tonight, Lord, in your presence. We need your presence. Oh God, we need your presence. We need your presence in our lives. We need your presence in our families, in our marriages. We need your presence in our work. We need your presence in our churches. We need your presence in our towns and our villages. And in this city, we need your presence. Nothing is going to do but your presence. So Lord, come, we pray tonight. We know you're here, but Lord, we pray for a manifestation of your presence in our midst. For the glory of your name, we pray. Amen. I hope you've got your Bibles with you because we are going to be looking at a number of scriptures tonight. Um, the first one we'll probably look at is uh, Exodus chapter 40. And then if you get a marker in there somewhere around First uh, Samuel 4, and then we'll be going to Second Samuel 4 after that. But um, we're going to look at God's Word tonight. And if you were here last week, you, you might remember, I hope you do, uh, that we were looking at God's presence in the Garden of Eden, and we looked at the very beginning of time and how God walked with Adam and Eve in the Garden, and we'll not go into that, but it's been recorded, and it will be available for you eventually. But tonight we're going to look specifically at the presence of God over the Ark of the Covenant. But that infers that we're talking about the tabernacle and the temple. But what I started off with last week was to say that there's more in Scripture, God's divine revelation of his mind and heart, about his longing to dwell with his people than there is about our desire as his creation to dwell with him. The passion of his heart has always been to be in the midst of his people, and manifestly so. And therefore, that ought to be um, the focus and the passion of our hearts, surely, if it's his heartbeat to be with us, our desire and primary in all of our motivations and all our activities as the church and individual Christians should be God's presence. 
practicing his presence and experiencing that. And right throughout Israelite history, one of the major ways that God dwelt with his people was through the tabernacle and through the temple. There'll be a slide up here. Thank you, Helen, for your help. First of all, the tabernacle, you'll read about that. It's like a tent of meeting in the wilderness. And there was, of course, a, 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 a priesthood and rites and rituals and sacrifices and offerings that we can read about all in the first five books of the Bible. And the, as the Israelites wandered around the wilderness, the tabernacle was the place that God met them. It was their meeting place with the divine being. And then as they graduated into the promised land and they established a home for themselves and they resided in Jerusalem, the temple was built. The next slide, and this is a, uh, the second temple. This is a bit more grandiose. But the idea was basically the same, that this would be the meeting place between God and, and men and women. And the next slide will show that actually in the tabernacle and the temple, as I say, was a more solidified version of this. There, there was the outer court, and then there was in the tent structure, if you like, first of all, the holy place. And you see there various pieces of furniture that we'll not go into tonight. But the holiest place of all, or the holy of holies, was this far uh, part of the tent, which was a box-like room with um, no windows in it. And the Ark of the Covenant would dwell there, and God gave great instructions as to how this should be built. And this acacia wood should be covered over with gold. And within it, there was some sacred items, the uh, rod of iron that budded some of the manna, and the tablets that God wrote, the Ten Commandments, on we're all in that box um, but before we go into that in any further detail I want you to understand that the tabernacle in particular and um, the Hebrew word for tabernacle is Hamashikan Hamashikan and it's the same root as the word Shekinah now some of you might be familiar with the term Shekinah glory are you? Put your hand up if you're familiar with that. And really, Shekinah glory depicts the visible presence of the invisible God. Visible indications that the invisible God is around. The word Shekinah isn't actually in the Bible. Um, but Hamashikan, tabernacle, literally is translated the dwelling place of the Shekinah. And it's derived from the Hebrew word to dwell, shikan. And all of it's speaking of the visible manifestation of the presence of God. And you see this in various forms in the Old Testament. So sometimes the Shekinah glory came forth as light. Sometimes it came forth as fire. So when Moses saw the burning bush, that was Shekinah glory. Sometimes it's a cloud. And we will see in a moment that the the Shekinah glory rested over the uh, Ark of the Covenant, over the cherubim there, the top of the Ark of the Covenant, and right over the tent of meeting by a cloud, a pillar of cloud by day, and a pillar of fire by night, fire and cloud. But oh, there are other things. There's loud voices, there's thunder, there's lightning. Even darkness can depict the Shekinah glory of God, and sometimes those figures come in a combination of many of those. Now, if you're to go to Exodus chapter 40 with me just for a moment, you will see there that upon the completion of the tabernacle, when it was completed in God's instructions that he gave Moses, then the Shekinah glory of God took up residence within the tabernacle. And in uh, chapter 40 of Exodus, 
last chapter, verse 34, it says, Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory, the kabod, the weary glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whether the cloud, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day, and the fire it was in the cloud by night in the sight of all the Israelites during all their travels. And so a very simple lesson for the Israelites was that they didn't move unless they saw the presence move. And if the presence didn't move, they didn't move. And that is a lesson for all of us today. We ought to be a people who are following the presence of God. But sadly, we tend to be, Lord, would you bless what we are doing? Would you bless what we have planned, what we have programmed, what we have arranged, rather than actually looking to see where God's at work, where God's presence is, and follow the pillar of cloud and fire? God's such a good God. He was even looking after his own children in the, in the wilderness. The wilderness is a very hot place during the day. It's a very cold place at night. And during the day, the, the, the uh, pillar of uh, cloud was like a canopy that would come over them to protect them from the, the sun. And during the night, guess what happens when the temperature drops? There's a pillar of fire like a divine super sir that's keeping, keeping them all warm at, at, in the evening. It's marvelous, isn't it, how God was protecting his people? But in the Old Testament, we read that God himself, whilst he dwelt, as it were, with his people in this tent, God was enthroned, the Bible says, above the cherubim. So see the Ark of the Covenant? That cloud that's above it, the pillar of fire and cloud, is where God would be enthroned, just on the mercy seat, literally. The mercy seat, and that was where the high priest would sprinkle the blood on the Day of Atonement where those cherubim, those angelic beings are. And cherubim in Scripture are beings of fire, and they cover the glory of God and reflect the glory of God. There were no windows in the Holy of Holies. So the high priest would have been tripping over himself and stumbling in that room if there wasn't the divine light. That's the only way that he could operate as a high priest was through the divine light. Now, if you can remember the the, the first image that I showed you, there's no beauty in the tabernacle. It was just a tent with animal coverings. But the glory was the kabod of God that rested on the tabernacle. And just can I remind you that it says of Jesus in Isaiah 53, there was no form or beauty or comeliness or attractiveness within him that we should desire him. Yeah? Just like a tabernacle covered in animal skins. He didn't look like a six-foot Swedish model with blue eyes that sometimes we see in, in portraits of him. He just like, looked like an ordinary Jewish man. But John says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, he didn't stand out in a crowd for any reason, but the glory of God was on. There came a day in uh, the history of Israel when they took the presence of God in the ark for granted and they lost it. 
Next slide shows you a kind of close-up of the, the, the glory of God and the priest, uh, what it may have looked like there in the mercy seat. But can you imagine taking the presence of God for granted like this? Well, if you go to First Samuel chapter 4, and we're going to be reading a fair bit of Scripture tonight, so stay with me, okay? And I'll summarize as we read. Shouldn't need to apologize for reading Scripture in church, should we? Verse 1, then, of First uh, Samuel chapter 4. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer. Interesting, Ebenezer means up to now the Lord has led us. To this point the Lord has led us. And there's a bit of presumption here. They're, they're thinking God's led us all the way. God's our God. God's presence is with us. And the Philistines at Aphek, the Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to the camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh, so that, we may go, so that he may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies." Now, right now, what you're seeing is there is a religious superstition entering into the, the, the faith of the Israelites here. That they are no longer reverencing God and the fear of God, but they're looking God to serve them. And they're treating the ark of the Lord, where God's presence rested, like a lucky charm or some kind of talisman that would, would win them the battle, basically. Bring the ark so that we may win the battle. Verse 4. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the ark of the covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Eli's the high priest, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, what, what's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. Oh, no, nothing like this has happened before. We're doomed. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the kinds of plagues in the wilderness. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be, be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated. And every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The ark of God was captured and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. This is not the way it was meant to go. Verse 12. That same day a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh with the clothes torn and dust on his head. And when he arrived, there was Eli sitting on the chair by the side of the road watching because his heart feared for the ark of God. I think he would be fearful for his sons, but he was fearful for the ark of God. He knew things were bad in Israel. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry, and Eli heard the outcry and said, what is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old, and whose eyes had failed so that he could not see. This is a picture of the nation. The high priest is old and done, and he can't see anymore. And he told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. And Eli asked, what happened, my son? 
And the man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the armies suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. And when he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died, for he was an old man and was very heavy. He's old, blind, and fat, and he's now dead. He was led, he led Israel 40 years. Now watch this. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, who is now dead, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. And when she heard the news that the ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labor and gave birth, but was overcome by her labor pains. And as she was dying, the woman attending her said, Don't despair. You have given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. So much we could say about that story. It's incredible. But the lesson is simply this. If we do not covet the presence of God and we do not reverence the presence of God and conserve the presence of God when we have the presence of God, we will lose the presence of God. We ought not to be presumptuous that we are God's people and God is among us. Or where two or three are gathered, there he is in the midst as he's promised. But where is the power? Where is the manifest presence of the living God? And the, the thing in Israel at this moment was, though they lost the ark, the power of God's presence was still real. It just wasn't with his people anymore. The symbol of God's presence was now with uh, the Philistines of all people. If you look at chapter 5 here, you'll see where, and this is remarkable, God has not lost his power. Do you know that? God is still God. God is still able. God has still got power. Power belongs to God. He created all power. Even the devil's power was originally created by God. And here in chapter 5, we see after the Philistines captured the ark of God, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. Just in case you don't know who Dagon is, Dagon was the Philistine deity who was a fish god. And uh, his top half was man, human, and his bottom half was fish. And he was a, a fertility uh, god. So basically they worshipped him to get fish and to get fruit and to get crops and all the rest. And there was all sorts of weird things involved in that type of worship. But they set the Ark of the Covenant in Dagon's temple, beside this image of Dagon. Look at verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. And they took Dagon and put him back in his place. Now, if you've got a God that you've got to put in his place, you're in trouble. You understand? But they had to put their God back in his place in verse 4. But the following morning, when they rose, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. His head and his hands had been broken off and were lying on the threshold. Only his body or his torso remained. 
So in other words, the command center of this God was broken before our God. His hands were broken before our God. Because he can't do anything. He can't think. He can't speak. He can't hear. He's a dumb idol. He can't do anything because he's not the living God. So God's still got power. That is why verse uh, 5, to this day, neither the priests of Dagon nor any others who enter Dagon's temple at Ashdod step on the threshold. Verse 6, the Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod and its vicinity. He brought devastation on them and afflicted them with tumors. Now this, I'll not read the whole passage, but they, they, they are terrified now of the living God that's in their midst. And they start moving the ark of God around the different towns of, of, of Philistia because there's tumors and there's curse that's coming through the presence of God. Now, you listen to what I'm saying here tonight. That the presence of God either brings blessing or cursing upon you. Right? And it all depends how you are aligned with the presence of God or not. And I alluded this a little bit last week when I said that God was in hell. Or should I say hell is in God because... You, do you understand what I'm saying? Hell doesn't belong to the devil. It was created for the devil and his angels, yes. But hell is basically when we say no to God and he says to us, thy will be done. And we desire an existence out of communion with God. But what I want you to understand is God's presence is hell to someone who is not aligned in his presence or with his presence. Do you understand me, you look like you don't understand. That's okay. But what I'm trying to say to you is it's not that God, God wants to send people to hell. You understand? It's when we are not aligned with his heart that we end up bringing the curse upon ourselves. These Philistine towns, the presence of God wreaked havoc. And so they said, we've had enough of this. We're going to send the ark of God back. Um, we can't be doing with this. And in chapter, let's see where it is. Chapter 6, verse 7. They decide this is what we're going to do. We're going to send God back to where he belongs. Verse 7. Now then, get a new cart ready and two cows that have, that, that, that have calved and have never been yoked. Hitch the cows to the cart, but take their calves away and pen them up. Take the ark of the Lord and put it on a cart, and in a, in a chest beside it put the golden objects you are sending back to him as a guilt offering. So they realized they'd sinned, and they devised these gold tumors and gold rats, which probably came about the, the, the tumors that they were all suffering from, probably spread with rats, or I don't know what way it worked, but they, they devised this way, we have to send an offering to this God to get rid of this curse. So gold tumors and gold rats. And the, if it goes up to its own territory toward Beth Shemesh, then the Lord has brought this great disaster on us. But if it does not, then we will know that it was not his hand that struck us, but that it happened to us by chance. Now I want you to think of their plan right here. Take two cows and a new cart and these cows of calf have never, never been yoked. Now, the last thing that you do if you want cows to pull a cart is you, you don't pick cows that have never pulled a cart before and never been yoked, that never had a yoke on them. And you certainly don't 
pick female bovine which cows have just calved. In other words, mommy wants to go to Bailey all the time. And they're saying, separate the calves, and we will know that this is God if these previously unyoked cattle who are yearning for their children because their mothers go a certain direction against their will. It has to be God. Then we'll know it's God that has done this. And look at verse 10. So they did this, and they took two such cows and hitched them on the cart and penned up the calves. They placed the ark of the Lord on the cart along with it, the chest containing the gold rats and the models of the tumors. Then the cows went straight up towards Beth Shemesh, keeping on the road and lowing all the way. They went in protest, lowing. They wanted to go back to their calves. They did not turn to the right, to the left, and the rulers of the Philistines followed them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. Not incredible. That had to be God. And when you look down at verse 19, we do see what happens next. It, it stops by a field, okay, in Israel. It, it goes home. The ark has now gone home to Israel. And it stops by a field of grain or corn. And verse 19, it says this, but God struck down some of the inhabitants, this Israeli uh, place, Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they looked into the ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the people of Beth Shemesh asked, who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God, to whom will the ark go up from here? Then they sent messengers to the people of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to your town. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord, and they brought it to Abinadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eliezer, his son, to guard the ark of the Lord. And the ark remained in Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years and all. Now, why am I telling you all this? I'm telling you all this to see the power of the presence of God. The power of the presence of God in the midst. And even when it got back among God's people, they looked inside the ark, which we were forbidden to do, and 70 of them were struck dead. Now I want you to come with me again to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. Because David had a heart after God, we know. And David wanted the ark of God, to be back into Jerusalem. He wanted a resting place for the ark in the presence of God. And so it says in chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, follow with me, David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all the men went to Bela in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord God Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim and the ark. And they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it. And Ahio was walking in front of it. And David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Necron, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled and the Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah 
and to this day that place is called Perez Uzzah, the breakout, break out upon Uzzah it means. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Right. I know I've read a lot of scripture, but listen, you need to hear it. And this is why I've read all those passages of Scripture. The Philistines robbed Israel of the ark of the presence of God. Yes? Why? Because they began to take it for granted. Taking the presence of God for granted, not conserving it, not preserving it, and they lost it. And then the Philistines got fed up with the curse that they were under because they were not aligned with the presence of God. So they, they want to get rid of the ark. And they even reverence God by sending these offerings. But they put the ark of God on a cart, a new cart. And they yoked the oxen to it, and they let the oxen be led of God, and it came back to God's people. But look at what happens. They, God's people look into the ark, and they are struck down 70 of them. And now David, 20 years later, 20 years later, is wanting the ark to return from Abinadab's house. And Abinadab's son Uzzah puts his hand out, and Uzzah means strength, by the way. Human strength. He puts his hand out. Remember, he would have been familiar with this ark for 20 years in his own home. His father's Abinadab. You understand? And whether it's over-familiarity or whatever it was, he put his hand out, steadied the ark, and he struck down. The anger of the Lord struck him. And David can't understand this, because David thinks he knows the Lord, but he can't understand what's going on here. And you know what happened? The Philistines sent the ark out on a cart and David did exactly the same. He put the cart out the same way as the Philistines did and he presented the ark. He rolled the presence of God out on a cart. And the book of the law says, listen, it says that the Levites were the only people who were allowed to carry the ark of God. And one particular clan in Levi, which is the family of Kohath, the Kohathites, they were the only one who were to carry the ark. And they weren't allowed to touch the ark. No one was allowed to touch the ark. The ark had to be carried with poles. There are rings on the ark of the covenant, and there are poles that are put through it. And so the men, the, the family of Kohath, those Levite priests, would carry it on their shoulders. Listen, because the presence of God cannot be rolled out on a cart. It can only be carried. And there is a little bit of apparent disparity here because we might ask the question, why were the Philistines not struck down as immediately the 70 were in Kirith Jerim? Why were they not struck down the way Uzzah was in that moment? I'll tell you why. Because God's people are meant to know better. God's people are meant to know his word. Do you know there's more expected? Boy, this this. Do you know there's more expected of God's people than anybody else? Jesus said, to whom much is given, much shall be required. First Peter says that judgment begins at the house of God. You might think, boy, this is heavy stuff. I'm, I don't care. Whether it's, it's this stuff, and we need to start 
understanding who we are. Yes, the blessings and the inheritance we have, but the responsibilities that we have to carry the presence of God, to reverence the presence of God, to conserve the presence of God. David was so confused. You know, how can I, he actually said, how can I bring, how can I bring this ark to me? He's basically saying, how can I bring God's presence near to me if this, if this is what has happened? But you see, David was beginning to learn something. You know what he was learning? There's something called the ways of the Lord. The ways of the Lord. Or to put it in another way, God's work must be done God's way. Now, I'm not getting into legalism here. It says in Psalm 103, Verse 7, God made his ways known to Moses, his acts or his deeds to the children of Israel. He made known his ways to Moses, but his acts, his deeds, his miraculous signs to the children of Israel. What that's saying is they saw the miracles. I mean, wouldn't it have been amazing to be a child and uh, in the wilderness and you, all you have to do is lift the corner of your tent door and you'd look out and you'd see God's presence with his people, a pillar of fire at night time and a pillar of cloud by day. And when it moved, everybody moved and God was with them. And what, what the psalm is saying is God made these acts and signs and wonders known to his people, but he, he, he shared his ways with Moses. His ways. Do you know the ways of the Lord? The ways of his presence the ways of his power. And Moses knew his ways so much that on one occasion God said, I'm done with these people. I've had it. They are rebellious people. And here's what we're going to do, Moses. I'm going to lead you into the promised land. I'll send my angel. He will lead you into the promised land, but I'm not going. You see? You know what Moses' response was? If you don't go with us, don't lead us up there. If you don't go with us, don't lead us. Or to paraphrase it, he says, if you're not going with us, I'm not going there. And what effectively Moses was saying, now think about this for a moment. He was saying, I would rather have you without my promised land than the promised land without you. What's your promised land? Is it a ministry? Is it a healing? What is it? Is it an answer to prayer? Is it revival? God knows I want revival and Ireland needs revival. But that cannot be your promised land opposed or diametrically opposed to the presence of God or in some way superior to the, the, the coveting of his presence. 
Would you be prepared? Now listen carefully to what I'm saying. I don't think this is a choice we necessarily have to make. But would you be prepared to have God's presence all the days of your life and not have revival? Now I said, I don't think that's a choice God's making us have. But what I am saying is, that's an important question, distinction in our hearts. There are God's ways, and one of his ways is he must be first. And you might think he's some kind of divine, um, a divine egomaniac. But he's not, because here's why. He knows we are our healthiest, our best, our most satisfied, our most fulfilled, overjoyed at peace whenever we are in perfect alignment to him. And when we're not in alignment to his presence, we get into the area of curse. And so there's this guy at the end of chapter 6 called Obed-Edom. And what you mightn't see, and you don't see in this passage, you see it in First Chronicles, is Obed-Edom had the ark of God in his house for three months. Abinadab had the ark in his house for 20 years, and we don't read of him being blessed. Are you getting this? Abinadab and his sons had the ark of God. It's the same thing. I said to you last week, there could be two people in a meeting and one is so overwhelmed they could be lying on the floor totally consumed and whacked by the power and the presence of God and a person beside them that is utterly oblivious like a statue of stone. Twenty years Abinadab had the ark of God in his house and it doesn't mention blessing and in fact all you get it seems is over familiarity because Uzzah reaches out his hand. It's all about human strength. But Obed-Edom has the presence of God and the power of God and the ark of God three months and it says he and his house were abundantly blessed. Why? Why? Because he knew the ways of God. Obed-Edom was a Levite. And he was of the clan of Kohath. So he was in God's ways. He was in alignment with God's truth. And God was blessing him. Now we are not in the Old Testament. We're not under the law. And we don't have to fulfill all these rules and rituals and so on. The presence of God is with his people. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit in whom God dwells. Okay? So we're not going backward in time. But what we are saying is it's the same presence that dwells in you. But if you're not aligned with the ways of the Lord, you will not know the power of his presence in your life and you will not know the blessing of God in your life like Obed-Edom. You might be oblivious to his presence or you might even be into that area where it's more like being cursed because you're actually going against the ways of the Lord. It's the ways of the world or it's the ways of the enemy. By the way, this is why we're not experiencing the presence of God in the modern day church in the West. 
Franz Havner said, nothing is scarier today in Christian churches than the absence of the presence of God. Moses asked, how shall we know that we are thy people? Is it not that thou goest with us? The devil will do anything to destroy the awareness of God's presence. One of his favorite tools is annoying circumstances that quench the presence of God. There's a preacher called Old Bud Robinson, and he was holding meetings in a dead church, spiritually barren church. And he was staying with the pastor, and one evening he was in his room praying very loudly, loud enough to be heard a mile away. And uh, the pastor looked in and said, Bud, dear brother, God is not deaf. And Bud replied, I know he's not, but he's a long way from this place. <laughs> now we know that's not true because of God's omnipresence in, the, in, in an omnipresent sense. And last week, we know where two or three are gathered, there am I in the name. When two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst, the Lord says. But we also talked about Laodicea, how that's all true, but Jesus can be locked outside the church door. That's what that guy's talking about. The manifest presence of God. I want to read this as I close. Duncan Campbell was a mighty man of God who was used in the Hebrides in the revival. And this is a powerful statement that I want to read. But before I read it, I want to say this. I was in Belfast City Centre all day today from about half ten, eleven o'clock. And I wasn't being a holy Joe. I just was with my wife and daughter who were shopping. But I decided enough of the shopping. I'm going to walk around the city and pray to the Lord and just keep my eyes open and ears open and just See what I see. And I'm burdened tonight. Really burdened. I'm a son of this city. But the enemy's everywhere. The darkness is everywhere. And whether it's you looking on the murals on the walls or you look at the type of shops or you look at the people walking about and if you have spiritual eyes that are open as we sang earlier, open the eyes of my heart that I might see you, but that our eyes are open that we might see the spiritual realm, you will see the darkness that is flooding through the streets of this city. Utter darkness. Demonic darkness. And then I go to Corn Market. And then I see what's portrayed as the church preaching. And all they're interested in is talking about sex. The church, LGBT plus, and condemning gay people and whatever, trans people and all sorts of orientations. I'm standing here as an observer, and I know some of the people, not getting into all that, but I'm watching, I'm thinking, this is like, this is like another dimension. It's like another planet. I'm sitting here and I can't identify with the darkness, but I can't identify with this. It's another spirit. 
And I, I actually wanted to go up. I actually saw the guy with a big rainbow flag, and I thought, I'm going to talk to him. And I went over to him, and I said, I could have a word with you. And he had a camera on him, so he was taping everything. And I said, are you on camera? And he, he says, you will be on camera. I said, well, I don't want to be on camera. So I didn't, I didn't then speak directly to him. But what I was going to say to him was, I'm a Christian. I believe the Bible. I believe everything that's in the Bible. But I, this is not me. This is not how Jesus... I could go on and on and on. That's a hobby horse. But I'm telling you this. Listen, folks. We need a move of God. We, there is nothing that is going to work for this city. It's not going to work. Because the power of the enemy is far too great for our wee programs. I'm not despising anything that any of us are doing. I'm doing stuff. All I'm saying is, it's like, I talked earlier about the, the, the grain of sand and the hugeness of the universe. That's what we are like in our little thing that we do and get on with when the enemy is coming in like a flood. And the only thing that is going to be able to resist him is when the Spirit of the Lord raises up a standard. That's what true revival is. That's what true revival is. When God takes the field, when God comes in his presence, that's the only thing that's going to work, folks. We never argue anybody into the kingdom of God. And I think there's a place for apologetics, and you're going to have a series on apologetics later on. God bless that. I do believe there's a place Paul reasoned with people, but even that doesn't work. It doesn't work if the Spirit of God doesn't come upon it. And what we need is a flood, a deluge of the Holy Spirit of God. We need the Holy Spirit to come and arrest people. Like just take hold of them without preaching at times. God just coming. It's the only thing that's going to work. The church is finished. Belfast is finished. Ireland is finished if God does not move. Now that should inform our prayers. Let me read this from Duncan Campbell. I want to say humbly and reverently that to me the greatest reality, the greatest fact in life is just the presence of the Lord Jesus. And I love him. That to me is greater than preaching. It is greater than seeing revival. I thank God for what I have seen in that realm, but the greatest thing of all is just to have fellowship with Jesus. We do well to remember that no amount of activity in the king's service will make up for the neglect of the king himself. How did they get the people at Pentecost? How did the early church get the people? By publicity projects, by bills, by posters, by parades, by pictures? No. The people were arrested and drawn together and brought into a vital relationship with God, not by sounds from men, but by sounds from heaven. We are in need of more sounds from heaven today. It seems to me that heavenly sounds are dying out. I'm sure you must have noticed that Pentecost was its own publicity. 
The average man is not going to be impressed by our publicity, our posters, or our programs. But let there be a demonstration of the supernatural in the realm of religion, and at once man is arrested. Three young women were praying in a barn when there was a sound from heaven. and The whole community became saturated with God. And men and women were swept into the kingdom. We had not organized. We had no publicity program. But heaven's messengers moved in the midst of the people. And in a matter of hours, churches became crowded as scores were swept into the kingdom of God. Revival is not churches filled with people, but people filled with God. In revival, the church, the roadside, the hillside, all become places made sacred by the presence of God and the cry of the repentant. The kingdom of God is not going to be advanced by our churches becoming filled with men, but by men in our churches and women becoming filled with God. It is one thing to shout it. It is one thing to sing it. It is one thing to talk about revival. But give me a people on their faces seeking to be rightly related with God. And when that happens, we will soon know the impact of God-realization in our country. God-realization. There is a growing conviction everywhere, and especially, now this was years ago, a growing conviction everywhere and especially among thoughtful people that unless revival comes, other forces will take the field that will sink us still deeper into the mire of humanism and materialism. We long for revival. We are longing to see a movement in our own community, in our own church, hall or assembly, and we are crying, God send it. But heaven's cry, heaven's cry is, is your eye fixed upon me? Get rightly related to me. God is the God of revival and he will revive us again. God is the God of power and he will find a willing people in the day of his power. I would say that the particular prerogative of the Holy Spirit is to purify and then empower. There's a kind of gospel being proclaimed today which conveniently accommodates itself to the spirit of the age and makes no demand for godliness. It is the signature of the Holy Ghost upon our work and witness that makes all the difference. How many there are whose lives are weak and whose service is poor and ineffective just because they have not zealously guarded the time and place of prayer, the presence of God. God have mercy. Christ have mercy. Lord, have mercy upon us. Lord, we are your church, redeemed by precious blood. But if we are honest, we know little of your presence. We know little of your power. Some of us have seen some signs and wonders. But we may not know your ways. Teach us your ways, Lord. 
like you taught your servant Moses, the one who cried to you, show us your glory, that I might know you, that I might know your ways. Lord, I pray for those whose lives here tonight are so out of line with your ways that actually they're suffering for it. And I pray that tonight would be a night of repentance, confession and renunciation and coming into line with the plumb line of your truth that will set them free. Cleanse them and heal them, Lord. I pray that there be people here tonight who will be established in your power and with your presence. For Lord, there's not one of us here tonight who cannot say that we don't need more of consciousness, the presence of Jesus. Lord, when we look around these streets and we look at the state of the church, Lord, we need more. I'm just relaying this to you in this attitude of prayer. I'm reminded of when I was walking to a funeral one day in Portadown. Beautiful sunny day. And I had a heart that was crying to God, just in general, Lord, I want more of you. I want more of you. And I heard the Lord say to me, not in an audible voice, but in my heart, and I want more of you. You see, we are very good at asking him for more. But if we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. That's the promise. Lord, we come to you tonight, those of us whose hearts have been touched by your spirit this evening. And we say, as far as we know, have it all, Lord. Take it all. You, you bought it all. It's all yours anyway. But have it all, Lord. Have your way in us. And come suddenly into your temple. Fill us with the power of Pentecost and the power of revival that is the power of the life of the resurrected Lord Jesus. Come and fill us. Teach us your ways, but have your way in us. And in your church. There will be an opportunity for prayer if you need healing or you need help or you need whatever. But I would I would really encourage you tonight um, to just allow the Holy Spirit who is hovering over us, whose presence is real. If you're discerning it, he's here. 
Allow him to do what he wants to do in you as you sit in his presence. Don't rush it. Please. Let him minister to you deep, deep. I believe God is doing something in this dark, evil day. He's doing something in his church. He's stripping her. He's breaking her. He's humiliating her. Not because he's cruel, but because there's pride and there's arrogance and there's the strength of man and there's religiosity and there's all sorts of spirits at work in the church. And he's stripping her of that, bringing her weak. He's exposing things in the church. We need to read Christian media to find this out. He's only doing it out of love because he wants his church back. He wants his bride back. Come, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you and the the ark of your strength into your dwelling place. Oh, God.